PDD, it's, it's all about collaboration, isn't it? I mean, that's what it's, that, if you want to break it down in a simplest thing, it's about collaborate between the different sort of teams that make up these uh, these projects and these applications. So, you know, I had to get people on site because if, if they weren't going to collaborate, the whole thing wasn't going to work. Welcome to the Cucumber Podcast. I'm Matt Wynn, and this week we're speaking to Chris. How do we say it? Glover. Yep, just like Danny. Um, and Chris, uh, Chris and I met, uh, bumped into each other at the uh, recent virtual conference organised by SmartBear, SmartBear Connect. Um, so Chris was in the Slack room chatting with me uh, during my talk which was just a sort of intro to BDD talk. And, and Chris had a really interesting story um, about being embedded and working in a team that was, um, I'd kind of struggled with a lot of the things I was talking about in the talk, um, that they'd struggled with a lot of the kind of common pitfalls that teams fall into when they're first learning BDD and it worked right through that with them. Um, and I just thought it was a really interesting story. Um, so I've invited him on the podcast to tell us about it. Anything you want to say to the, to the listeners to say hello, Chris? Um, hello, thanks for having me on, and um, I suppose thanks for the SmartBear Connect as well. It was great that people was actually putting conferences out for all of us in the middle of COVID-19, so it was nice to be able to attend. Um, and I'm also joined by the inimitable Seb Rose. Hello, I'm I'm lurking here. This is the first time I've met Chris, but I have met Matt before. <laughs> um, and so it turns out that we've also got a... Another mutual acquaintance, right, Chris? So this is just as we were talking before the the uh, the, the tape started rolling. Um, it hilariously it turns out that the client that this story is about, Seb and I had actually um, been been and visited them before Chris. Do you want to tell us tell us about how how that all came about, Chris? What happened? Yeah, so so basically, you, you guys have been in. You've done your coaching. Um, You'd laid out some of the pitfalls and all the things that the guys have to think about. Um, you'd done a bit of coaching off the back of that, and then I think you kind of left them to it at that point. And they rolled on for about a year, building automated testing, um, applying bits of BDD, not all of it, forgetting what it was kind of about. Um, and then about a year later, uh, all their tests started running red every single day, and they would rerun them to try and make them run green without actually looking at why they were running red. And the, the only thing they were looking for was a green run. So it got to the point it was just a tick box exercise. Um, within the company at that time, I had recently become lead test automation engineer, um, moving across from a manual testing job. Um, and I got kind of dropped into the project and asked to look at what was going on and try and tell them what to do to fix it. Um, so that's kind of about a year after you guys I'd uh, left them alone. <clears throat> um, so when I dropped in on day one, there was uh, no trust in the tests. Nobody listened to them. Nobody really cared about them. They ran them. If they got them red, they ran them again. If they got them red, they ran them again. If they came out green, they went to the That was about the extent of it. So they weren't running them in CI even. They weren't getting run automatically when they checked in code. They had to run them... So, so the test the test they originally wrote um, took five hours to run. Um, so they went through some of the common sort of mistakes. They created a test pack that was fully sequential. 
So every there was I think I think there was about five hundred tests. Oh no, sorry, there was about three hundred tests in it, and every single one relied on the one that ran before it. So if you got to test four eh, three hundred and well, if you got to test two hundred ninety nine, you had to go through two hundred ninety eight tests to even debug what was going on with the two hundred ninety ninth. Right. Yeah. So the, the run times were huge. Everything relied on everything else. The minute one of those tests went down for whatever reason, um, that just cascaded through the rest of the suite. So you know they, that's why they were just running it again because they, they didn't investigate what was going on because you had too much time to go through the debug and actually work out why they'd failed. And most of the time, the failure was the usual sort of expectation with Selenium. So it was, uh, you know, you, you started to hear all the usual words: flaky tests, flaky Selenium. Yeah, and when you had a look at it, what you realised was that there was there was robot button presses going on all over the place. Um, there was, robot what? Uh, just just key presses. So not not even sending keys through Selenium, but using um, third party library robot. So it was just key presses. So when you tried to debug it in the actual Eclipse IDE, when you hit those lines of code, what it would do would press that key within your IDE. <laughs> <laughs> so. <laughs> So these are, these are the sort of things we were encountering on day one. So, you know, um became apparent why things weren't working like they expected. And how about kind of the relationship with the with the business around the tests? Like, were, were any of these tests biz- written in a business-readable way or read by the business or any of that? Or were they all just... They'd given it a bash. They, they had given it a bash. They were trying to use Gherkin. Um, they were trying to use the given when then, but it usually ended up being given and, 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 when, and, and, given, and, and, when, and, and, then. So some of these scripts were getting up into, you know, 60, sort of, 60, 70 lines. Wow, right. And it was it was all it was all prescriptive sort of things. It, was, it wasn't behaviours. So it was uh, when, when I add a username to um, username field, and I add password to password field, and I click on button. You know, when it could have just been given I have logged into the application, given I am authenticated users. You know, so it's something behavior based. So, you know, they they taken the idea of Gherkin and they they got the idea that they could automate it. But I, I think they'd made the common mistake of thinking that BDD just means they've got some automated tests at the end of it, and they're written using the Gherkin syntax. They hadn't sort of they hadn't embraced, you know, all the things that come before the example map and the three amigos, the actual collaboration, talking between, um, you know, getting the business, the testers, and, and the developers all together in the same room and bashing one of these out, things out, so they knew exactly what that story was. Um, so what you ended up getting was the, the testers were maybe handed across a script that they would do for manual testing, and that manual testing script could be handed to any manual tester, and that's where you're getting these ideas of put the username in, put the password in, click the button, go to this screen, change to that screen, fill in this field. So it, it, it was like a it was like a manual test script that anybody could pick up and run. But they hadn't switched that into behaviours when I actually hit the, uh, the the feature files. So, you know, you're seeing these feature files and when, when I got dropped in on day one, there was, um, as I say, there was these sequential list of files and they're all needing things that have been ran maybe sort of 40 tests ago. So, yeah, you really couldn't you couldn't work out what the hell was going on anyway. Um, so the first thing we done was try and break that down a little bit, and um, there were some guys that came in from uh, an outsourcing firm uh, to help with it. And what they did was the um, they broke off a main group of tests, um, which they called the setup suite, 
um, and they still had to run sequentially, but they basically set up the entire environment. And then what would happen was they would uh, take a snapshot of the database at the point that those tests finished. So instead of waiting for 300 tests to now run, uh, we only had, I think there's about uh, 19 or so um, scenarios in it. So 19 scenarios would run, that would set up the environment, and then they would snapshot the database at that point. Then every single other test after that would restore that snapshot of the database. So at least now we had, you know, four other suites that they ran off the back it that went to different areas of the system. Um, and they all had a, a database snapshot that they could restore. So they were all starting from that same point. So if any of those ones broke now, we could debug it by just taking that snapshot and just going into that one test and dealing with that one test. So that got away that huge, um, you know, three, four hour sort of setup you would have to debug one of the later tests going down. So that, that was the first improvement that was made. And that, that got us to the point where we could actually start addressing the flakiness that was in these tests. Um, so that's that's what I started doing at the point that I came in. So we, we identified that, you know, there's tests here and they're running and nobody trusts them. You know, you're, you're hearing all the same words that you see all over the internet and stack overflow and all the rest of it. Flaky tests, flaky selenium. And it's the same story as always. It's not flaky tests. It's not flaky selenium. It's the fact that, you know, you're, you're using dumb weights. You're not pulling the pages. So when they're running on one system, uh, if, if they've got the, um, if they've got the stool, full stack and full, uh, full stack of the application installed in their laptop, you know, tests are running quicker because it's going to the database, it's going to the um, application server and all that, all, all within the same place. The minute that's going up onto the pipeline, it's going across the network, that's taking things longer, so suddenly their, their waits weren't long enough. So what they were doing at that point when they were originally writing these was they were going in and just making the waits longer. They weren't going that extra step and actually pulling the pages. So yeah. basically, basically what we've done at that point is... Um, I think, I think this is what I mentioned to you in the um, in the Slack chat. There was a there was a guy. Uh, I'm sure it was Eurostar. I'm sure the guy's name is Yanni Hapler. Um, he came up with a. I mean, it's, it's like BDD. It's, it's not rocket science. It's quite simple common sense. But he came up with a a process that he called test jailing. Um, so what was happening was if a test failed within the pack, they would isolate that test with. Um, that could mean taking out the pack or just explaining to other people that, look, you can't trust what that test is saying right now because something's went wrong with it. Rest of the pack's fine, but we're going to have a look at this test. But what the one thing that it drove home is what we don't say at that point is the test is flaky because we don't know the test flaky. It could be the application. So just by putting that in place, what it done was it stopped people talking about flaky tests. It stopped people getting this idea that it's all the fault of the test because if it's always the tests that are flaky, then why are you bothering to run them? The tests are there to tell you if the application's flaky or something's went wrong with the application. So, you know, you, you've got, you've got, you can't just say if a test has failed that the test is a problem. It could be that it's telling you something wrongs with the application. So just by just by putting that process in, it stopped people saying these tests are flaky, and that started to turn around the idea of, you know, we, we don't trust these tests. It's just a tick box, a tick box exercise. We just want it to be green. So what we would do is we would isolate the test, we would investigate the test, and we would say at that point, is it a problem with the um, is it a problem with the test or is it a problem with the application? If it's a problem with the application, we feed that back to the, the people that have made changes recently, um, find out what they've done, and either they would change the application to make the test work again, or they, we would change the test to bring it in line with the new changes to the application. But what they were learning was that you were actually getting feedback from the application with these tests at that point, which before they weren't, well, they were getting feedback, but they weren't paying any attention to it. So that sounds like a really good way of, um, I mean, it sounds like an excellent way of taking uh, 
a bad experience when you come to run the the, the scenarios and, and and improving it. Uh, but earlier on, you mentioned that the actual scenarios themselves are really difficult to understand. It wasn't clear what necessarily they were there to be testing uh, because although they'd used Gherkin, they hadn't really been working with uh, business or product owner or customers to to specify what the behaviors should be. Were you able to address that or is that something that that was deferred or until later on in the process after the test pack was more was 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 reliably giving you feedback yeah it was it was kind of deferred at that point because they had so much investment in the feature files that had been written at the time i mean there was hundreds of feature files you know hundreds of scenarios within all of these together so the 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 guys that had built these tests originally felt the tests were worthwhile, even though they probably weren't written in the clearest way. So I think at the outset, it was a case of trying to turn around people's um, opinion of the tests. Um, because if you think if you think of the people using it on site, then there was no point doing any more of the work. We should have just shut down the whole process. Got it. So once once we started that test yielding process and we started to isolate these test cases and fix them on a reactive basis, um, so we we started to take out the the dumb weights, we started to replace them with pollen, um, it started to improve the, the code base that was there. Um, then people started to you know have some trust in the test because we what we went we went from you know red green red green red green through Jenkins up to you know maybe three or four greens and then a little yellow because one of the tests has failed so we mm. would isolate that test we would fix it we would put it back in we'd get green runs again for a bit and something else would fail and these these were just network issues you know it was, it was the speed of the network at the time that the test was running um, so over time these things started to uh, get flushed out we started to fix them we started to see more and more green runs and we got to points where we were getting weeks at a time when it was running green mm-hmm. and at this point what you were starting to get was developers were actually going What's the test are, are, are we okay at release? And that was unheard of up to this point because you know they, they, they didn't care about the test before. So now the, the developers were actively not wanting to put code into production um, or on the release branch until they knew the test pack was running green, which I, th- I think was huge at this point. Um, so then to, to address what you're saying about the actual quality of the, the Gherkin syntax they've been writing, um, we kind of had a choice to make. It was either... Um, try and rewrite the test that they had in the code base that they've used um, or kind of draw a line under it and start from scratch and try and address the mistakes that they made on a, on a clean code base. There'd been so many developers working on the code base and there'd been so many solutions to so many similar problems that it felt like the better idea was just, you know, just draw a line under this, let's start from scratch build up a new uh, library code base and then as things become available we may move them over in the new code base and decommission the old one or we may just turn the test off altogether so um, we started up a, a parallel sort of automation project um, and we brought in um, Serenity um, so the, the Serenity framework and uh, using the screenplay pattern because one of the other things that we noticed <clears throat> was a lot of the work on this had been done um, heavily by the developers and the testers had been involved maybe for a bit of input on how the test would run, but they weren't really involved in the building of the test at all. And a lot of the code, a lot of the code that we had, um, I mean, the, the testers that work within the company, they're, they're generally more on the, on the sort of manual exploratory side. They don't have a lot of sort of code experience. So the way things were written when we were just using um, Cucumber, Selenium, um, JUnit, it was it was difficult for them to get their head around what was going on at the times. 
and especially since you had, you know, maybe 15 developers working on it over a year, all putting their own sort of versions of different solutions in there. So there, there was there was disparity between the, the naming conventions of variables, the way things, the methods were getting constructed. So, you know, it, it was difficult for somebody that wasn't a developer to come in and make any sense of that. So we had a look about and identified that Serenity and Screenplay seems quite useful for um, j just turning a lot of the sort of higher level parts of the code into human readable language. So, um, so what we started to do was we've, we've introduced Serenity, we've introduced the screenplay pattern. We've it's added a lot more abstraction to the code as well. Um, previously, they just went with the it's to be expected. They went with the page object model. They, but even even then, some of the page objects were had their own class. Some of the page objects were being done at the top of the um, the methods where things were sort of going on. So even with the page object, there was a mix of styles going on there. So we took that away and we've abstracted everything right out. So we've got clear classes for the page objects. We've got clear classes that we're using for tasks, which um, capture a number of different actions together. We've got generic actions that we can pass web elements to that will do things. So, you know, the, the generic things will be like clicking a button. Um, it's going to be pretty much the same process for clicking a button anywhere in the application. So if we have the generic method that handles the weights and the polling and all that sort of stuff, then we can just tell the button we want to click and we don't have to worry about it anymore. So we've put all that in place. We've got questions that we can use to ask about the, the system so we can get information back to the task and then assert whether it's done the right thing. We've got step definitions. Um, how I've tried to liken it to the guys is when we, when we had the page object model on its own, we separated the, the and we had the Gherkin, we separated the how from the uh, the what. Yeah. So, and kind of how I likened it when we've done the serenity pattern is we've kind of split that up even more. We've got the how, the what, and the who. Mm-hmm. So we've got different different actors sort of coming in and doing the sort of the parts. Um, so given that level, that extra level of abstraction, when we've started to find errors coming out now, we're finding when we're hitting them on um, on the old model. I mean, just two weeks ago, um, one of the guys made a change to the DOM um, and it knocked out, I think, about sixteen tests. And we spent about a week trying to get through them. Some of these tests were in the setup section that I mentioned earlier. So what was happening was they were, they were cascading into the later tests. So we had to work in the setup section first, fix that. Once that was all fixed, then we knew that anything failing later on was down to the actual failure and not a failure in the setup. Um, so I think all in all, it's taken us about two weeks to get through all these fixes and get the things up and running green again. Um, the tests that we've got in the Serenity screenplay, um, because we've got this so abstracted, they changed the page object. We went and found the... Um, we went from the element in the page object. We changed that. It was fixed within you know, five minutes, and that's starting again. Sort of give these guys, you know, if you build these things right and you take the time to build them right from the offset, then the maintenance isn't that bad, provided the teams actually let you know when things are getting changed. Yeah. So that's a really interesting story. Um, some of the people listening to this may not be familiar with Serenity or Screenplay. Uh, Serenity, the, the, the notes will be um, attached to the podcast. You'll be able to find them online. But Serenity is uh, is an open source product from uh, from Australia. And Screenplay is a pattern that uh, Serenity implements. But Matt has written some blog posts about it as well. So you don't actually need Serenity to use Screenplay. It's uh... Yeah, I mean, I mean the, the report itself in Serenity is quite good as well. And again... Um... It, it gives you a lot of pictures, so it's, it's, it's very easy to display to the, sort of the management sort of um, level. Uh, it's very easy to display yeah. testers because it gives you a lot of visual sort of things that you can look at. The thing that's really interesting about screenplay, when you mention about 
gherkin separating the what from the how and actually you know those early scenarios that the team had when you first arrived there basically wasn't any separation between the what and the how because the, the scenarios were just full of how yeah right um and kind of what we're doing when we are well what we're doing when we're when we're working together on a software project is we're building models we're building concepts out of all of that how and we're building abstractions and we're giving them names and so um mo- like the how is multi-layered there there isn't just like two layers one one layer is what and the other layer is how there are there are lots of layers of how and um the beauty of screenplay is that you can model those multiple layers of how because you can have a um do we call them commands in what do we call them actions or interactions i think in screenplay right yeah so uh, you've got actions and questions so the actions are kind of right. doing things against the application yeah. questions are asking things of the application yeah but you can have actions that are composed of smaller actions so you can have an action that is like log in or even um get to the admin report screen right and then that that can be composed of an action of of smaller actions which are log in navigate to administrative page and then within the navigate to administrative page action you can have the little fine-grained actions that are actually the the steps of getting you there but like each of these it's like you, you build the small pieces and then you can you can sort of bubble them up yeah. Um, and then when you run it through Serenity, what you see is those, uh, you can see like kind of logging of um, all of the different layers of, of how in there. So you can see, oh, well, how did they achieve getting to the navigating to the to the admin reports page? Oh, I see. They did these other things. And, it, and it's all um, it's, it's all transparent to you, which I think is really, really important because kind of one of the reasons that teams can can put all of their how in their scenarios is because they're they're still getting used to doing test automation. They don't really trust their tests. And so they kind of want to see it all naked. Yeah. Um, but actually it makes them very difficult to maintain when they do that. So encouraging them to push the how down is, is good from a maintenance point of view. And um, in the end, they're more, they're more readable, but they have to trust what's going on underneath the hood, don't they? So. But I, th- I think that's, I think with the, the way Serenity builds up these methods, um, even makes those, all those method calls lower down a lot more human readable. So yeah. it allows the testers to sit beside the developers and they can still make some sort of sense of what's going on even when they're getting down into the sort of lower level tasks, which I, th- I think is great because that pushes that collaboration idea again. So going, so you mentioned collaboration there. I mean, how did that, how did you see that change on the team? Because it sounds like you kind of almost helicoptered into this team. You've got outside experience, lots of ideas. The team is struggling a bit. Um I mean, how was if it's all right to you know some of them might listen to this podcast, but like, how was the atmosphere on the team when you when you first arrived, and how did it change as you went through this process? I, th- I think yeah, it was the usual sort of siloed um, approach. So you had the testers doing the testing, you had the developers doing the developing, you had the business owners coming up with the ideas of what they want, and it was all getting chucked over the wall to other people. Um, they still had that, you know, they still felt they were doing the concept of agile. Um, you know, they were still doing two week sprints and all this sort of stuff, but. There was no, there was no coherence in the team. Everybody had their roles, and that's what they were bothered about doing. And one of the things that I tried to drive home when I when I got, kind of dropped into all this was that you know um, DevOps, BDD, all the rest of it. It's all collaboration. We're all responsible for the quality of the tool. So it's it's not a case of 
developers chucking it over the wall, testers and testers testing it and saying that tool's fine. And then, you know, it goes into production and then a bug get appears and then a manager loses the plot and comes back and starts screaming at the testers about who didn't test what. Um, so I imagine we've all been there and seen it. Um, but, you know, it, it, we start to get everybody involved and, you know, trusting the test and you start to get people interested in the test and you can start discussing the sort of quality of the application as a whole. The, the developers start to, they start to have a trust in the test. So they, they start, you know, getting more interested in the quality of that application past their, their unit tests. They like to see the quality of the application as a whole coming out of these automated tests. And so, you know, the developers start to come on side, the testers start to come on side and get a bit more interested. And what you've seen was these um, these barriers start to break down. And um, we started to introduce um, a manager at the time, started to bring in, he was a big DevOps advocate, he started to bring in um, integration scrums daily. So that would bring together all um, representatives from all the different teams um, just for a chat to make sure everybody was aware of everything that was going on, anything that might impact anything else. Um, what I started to introduce was, um, monthly prioritization sessions that we would go through business priorities and work out, you know, um, we were, it was basically a three amigos prioritization. So we bring representatives in from each area, business and um, test and development. Um, we'd find out what areas we wanted to test, where changes were coming. We'd rank out the, we'd rank these things on various different categories. So um, kind of point scoring systems. So, you know, overall business priority, how much do they want it done, um, test complexity, um, development complexity, and that kind of gave us a way to rank all these sort of things and create a backlog of tests that we could start looking at building. Um, the things that came out of these prioritization sessions, we then started to organize um, fortnightly um, feature file refinement sessions. So depending on the complexity of the feature file we're looking at or the scenario we're looking at, we may do an example mapping session or we may just jump right into writing the feature file, um, depending on how complex they were. And that starts to build up, you know, an actual backlog of these um, feature files, which we could then pick up when the developers start to get more used to Serenity and we start to build them. So, you know, we're, we're, building, um, we're building tests now in Serenity where we've dealt with the main sort of issues that we're finding in the, in the old pack. So we've got nice universal solutions for um, for waiting and polling and all these sort of things that are coming in. Um, so the hope is that we're, we're going through a refactor just now to make sure all the codes um, adhere to the standards that we want to set. Um, and the plan after that is that this is going to get released to the rest of the developers and start saying, you know, you guys, if you want, can now build using this framework. If you want our help, we'll work with you to help you build tests for the things that you're building if you want to take a bash at it we're happy to you know review it afterwards before it goes up but it's, it's going to be opened up to all the testers but uh, all the developers but the one difference from this time that we had from before is that we've got the standards in place and we've dealt with all these sort of small methods uh, all these small issues like the weights uh, at universal level so when they come in to do their test they just have to worry about doing the test now they don't, they don't have to get involved in the sort of, you know, the little intricacies of test automation. It's like they just worry about the screens. So that it's really interesting that you've you've built the trust between the develop well, between testers and developers. Essentially, you've, you've gone, uh, you've included more people in the collaboration and got them interested. How how successful have you been um, bringing the business analysts and the product owners in to the to the actual crafting of the of the scenarios and the feature files? Um, product owners have been in uh, some of the collaboration meetings, um, some of the prioritization sessions. They've been in some of the feature file meetings, but 
a lot of the time, the time these guys, uh, they don't always have the time to sort of sit in our meeting and do this. But they are, they are trying to get in there. Um, they are trying to show face and they are trying to represent their area. Um, not as much as I would like, but you know, I think that's just that's just the nature of uh, the sort of turnarounds that we've got to deal with. But do do you see? Uh, I mean, would you say that you've seen benefit from the scenarios and the feature files that the product owners have been involved in crafting when you compare them to the ones that are crafted without their involvement um i think yes but strangely it's not from them wanting more things tested it's from them wanting less which is quite nice because the, the, the tester mindset is that you know they come in they want to test absolutely every permutation that they can and some of the testers the manual guys have still got this idea that you know we, we should go into the scenario with 15 different examples and it's like mm. well can we not test that data down lower why, why do we have to test that through the ui you know, if this test is going to take seven minutes, you want to run it five times, that's five times seven. And are you really getting anything else out of that extra data? Whereas the actual product owners are like, you know, just test a simple scenario. And if it works, I'm happy. So that's so it was, really it, interesting. It, was, Hi. Uh, it, it wasn't what I was expecting. No. Okay. And how, I mean, have you had, had any success in convincing your uh, colleagues in test that, that some of this, some of this quality assurance, some of this testing should be pushed down maybe into the unit testing level. Took a while, but they're starting to get, they're starting to get there now. I, 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 I mean, you guys maybe see it more than me, but I think there's still this feeling that there's, there's a divide between test automation and manual testers. And I think some of them still feel that test automation is there to take their job away. And yeah, that's, that's not, that's not the case. I was really interested to ask you about that. I made a note of that earlier because um, you started off by saying about your background that you'd come from a manual testing background and yet, you know, you're talking about pretty advanced technical stuff like design patterns, like the screenplay pattern. And you've obviously become really comfortable with the, with the sort of tech technology side of doing test automation. Well, fake it, fake it till you make it. Bobby. <laughs> no, 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 but I imagine there might be quite a few people listening to this thinking, wow, you know, I could never do that. Um, he really sounds like he knows what he's talking about. And I just wondered if you could kind of put yourself in your shoes of, I don't know how long ago it is now, like two or three years or, or whatever. And, um, you know, what 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 advice do you have for somebody who um, is in that situation? And maybe they are feeling a bit a bit. Um, afraid of the impact of test automation on their career and um, you know what 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 advice would you have for somebody who was thinking that way I mean the, the first thing I would say any manual testers if you've got any interest in getting into the sort of the side of things then just go for it there's, there's a wealth of information out there on the internet um, yeah. when, when it came to learning to code I mean I started out with VBA on the back of Excel so I used to work as a calculations analyst um, so lots of spreadsheets and started to realize at that point you know that there's ways to work faster and smarter rather than working harder so i used to automate things using vba through spreadsheets so i could do thousands of calculations instead of one or two and that kind of led on to working with databases and pulling information straight off the database into excel and you know nobody was teaching me how to do this this was all just google searches stack overflow you know i, I think i think the biggest difficulty on getting into this is um that's perhaps the jargon. Um, I, I don't know if that's how we keep ourselves in employment by just you know mm. keep, keeping the words keeping the words complicated just to keep the outsiders away. But I mean, re really, you know, it's, 
it's all common sense, really, isn't it? It's all simple logic. It's all zeros and ones and yeses and nos. Um, and there's, there's so much information on the, on the internet and oh, there's so much of it that's free. You don't have to go and do these expensive courses. So, you know, I, I, once you start delving into that, and you, you, once you start working with, with developers alongside you, I think, I think even as a manual tester getting this information, it makes you a better tester. It, 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 gets you, it gets you away from the idea of, you know, testing something, saying it's wrong and handing it back over to the developer. You know, you can go that extra step. You can debug it a little bit. You can do a couple of extra steps and, and test and sort of say, it's wrong and this is why I think it's wrong and this is where I think it's going wrong. And then that starts to open that door and gets you working with these guys. Then you start to see a bit of the code that starts to make sense. And once you get into the code, um, you know, once you start learning things like loops and ifs and all these sort of things, there's not really much more complication than that. Um, but I mean, on the subject of is it here to take your job away? No, it's definitely not. There's there's no way automation at this stage. You know, I mean, we've we've got artificial intelligence coming in the line and all the rest of it. But I mean, I don't think it's ever going to get to a point anywhere in the next ten or fifteen years where it's going to take over a tester's job. Uh, test automation's on rails. You know, it's, it, it can handle the things that we tell it to handle. But if if you've got a manual tester in there looking at a screen doing a test. And he sees something off to the side of the screen that he doesn't expect to see. He can say something about that, but the test automation will just gloss over it because as long as its assertions are getting um, coming back with true, then that's going to go away and say you've passed. So you'll always find things in an exploratory test that you won't find um, your test automation. So I, I'd like I like the fact that you call call it as mainly common sense because um, because although you're absolutely right, the one thing about common sense is it just doesn't seem to be that common. Um, in the same way that artificial intelligence doesn't seem to be that intelligent, so we've got uh, we've got words that that get in the way uh, because because some of the things that you've done, and I know that I know that you're saying anyone can do it, but some of the things that you've just described actually are impressive. You know, learning these things uh, from scratch from the internet is a, is can be a daunting task for a lot of people. So I, I personally have um, worked with companies where the the organization has tried to mandate that uh, people without automation skills, that you know, testers without automation skills, acquire those automation skills, and they have found that very stressful. Um, so uh, while there is loads of information out there and it is, it is common sense. It's also there's you will have put a lot of work in. Don't get me wrong. From the from the days of Excel and doing VBA, I'm, I'm currently. Um studying a degree part-time in computer and IT through Open University, um, just to kind of, again, this is a imposter syndrome kicking in. So I've, I've came across from the, um, the the manual test, and I've, I've got an idea about code, but I still encounter things here and there where I'm like, oh, that's, that seems, you know, um, I don't know. People keep talking about lambdas currently. I've, yeah. I, I don't have a clue what they're talking about. They're small sheep. I've seen that. <laughs> I've seen them on the screen, and I can kind of point where I'm going. You know, that's a lambda, but I don't know what's going on. Um, so, so that's I've, I've kind of felt that you know I've I've maybe taken myself to as far as I can um, using the internet. Perhaps I could get further, but I thought you know I'd just like to have some sort of certificate to tell other people that I can do what I think I can do, and maybe fight that imposter syndrome. And, and you know, it's it's that imposter syndrome that's been the biggest sort of hurdle getting through all this. It's like I keep learning something. And I keep thinking, oh, okay, I've, I've got this now. And then something else comes along that I don't know. And I was like, well, maybe I'm not as good as I think I am. So it's, it's, it's a constant battle with myself. But, you know, if, as long as I can tell myself that, you know, just keep reading. Just keep just keep reading and searching and looking. And the information is there and you'll, you, you'll get through it in the end. 
Yeah, that's really good advice. I wonder if I could dial you back. So we've we've gone through, we've, we, you know, you've shared a lot of interesting information about how, you know, the problems that you, you observed and how you addressed them. Um, but I wonder whether we could just briefly go back to talking about those 19 scenarios that set up the database state that then gets snapshotted and replayed for every every other scenario. So, I mean, clearly we're talking here about test data management. Um, and I'm wondering, is, is what you've got now um, good enough? Are there ways that you can see that you'd like to improve that? Are there other techniques for test data management beyond using scenarios to to play a database into a state where you could snapshot it? Yeah, so so what they did before was they, the reason they had these set of tests is they were, they were setting up an entirely manufactured um, database where they, the control of, they, were, they were in control of the data all the time, so the tests would always have the same data. It's great. Um, it's, it's sensible, um, but it was also taking quite a long time to actually do. Yeah. Um, and you know that there were still these elements that sometimes one might fail, and that would have this cascade through all the rest of it. So what we've done to replace that is um, we've started taking live databases. Mm -hmm. um, we are completely sanitizing them of customer data, mm -hmm. and we bring those across in the test environment, and we snapshot them at that stage. So now instead of running against manufactured databases, we've got a library of um, client. Um, databases which have all the customers removed from them so there's no sort of you know data protection things going on here yeah. mm -hmm. um, and then what we do with those ones is we inject customers into those databases um, at the start of the test and snapshot it and then run from there so the setup now is really just getting customers and information in that database <clears throat> um, we're still a little early in the in the development of this uh, model but what we, the other thing we've done is instead of going with set dates um, so all the dates and this other thing uh, the, the older model they were um, you know they're all set back in 2017 and they were never changing so we we're constantly getting further away from it and they're back in 2017 i don't know if somebody's added something that's got some date logic in it and i don't exactly. know if that's going to trip it so so um so what we've got now is instead of working with uh, set dates we were working with um, dates offset from today's date so you know or dates offset from the the period that something starts so when we spin up the database we go away and gather some information about that database um and we'll hold that in, in an object within uh, the code and then all the um all the assertions will come off the back of that so we'll say that you know if, if i go 50, uh, 150 days back from this date i expect to see whatever so that way we're constantly rolling along with the actual databases if things change in production that'll come across the test we'll maybe catch things before they actually happen in production so, um, but yeah, I mean, t test data management of a size of the application that we're dealing with is always going to be a complication. Um, but, you know, to try and stay in control of your data. If you can inject data, then do it that way. Um, if, you, if you can get as close to live as possible, do it that way. Um, but there, there, there's always going to be difficulties around that. Um, the, the other thing is, I, th I think something they hadn't realized at the time when they first started doing these um, uh the, the, the Gherkin and the, and the automation is they always went towards the UI route. So even, even in the setup of the given, they were still going through, you know, the, even when we broke the given down into, you know, a nice simple behavior in the newer ones, the developers initially were still wanting to go away and do a lot of stuff through the UI. I was like, well, what are we doing through the UI? Well, we're, we're logging in. Okay, well, maybe I'll have to do that. That's fair enough. What else are we doing? Oh, we're, we're setting, you know, we're giving the clients these things and, you know, these objects and these benefits, and this pension and that pension, all these sort of things. 
It's like, well, well, what's the end result of going through the UI to do all these things? Well, things go in the database. <laughs> so can we not just stick on the database? And then suddenly, you know, you've knocked out about seven minutes worth of the test. And you've also got something that's probably going to work every single time. Because you're not, you're not going through the stack. You know, it's, it's just put that information there. Let me use it. So we're now, you know, in the given steps, we're kind of going away from using the UI. It's the, we try and keep the UI for the when and the then. Yeah, so there's lots of good advice we've gone through here, isn't there? I'm just thinking thinking back to try and summarise it all. I think what um, what's, what's probably worth people taking away from this if they are finding themselves more in the situation of w- where this team was when you first arrived, Chris, is is probably that that idea of the the jail that you put the 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 bad tests in seemed like a really important step. So the first step was getting the whole build to be green, even if it didn't have as many tests in it, so that you restored faith in them. Then you got them more sort of fast and stable by using... Sorry, you stabilized them. Then you you, um, made it faster to debug them by breaking them into these separate sections so you could run parts of them independently. Yeah. Um, And then you started to work on the, the actual sort of main maintenance of them so you started to um uh, work on the underlying how they were how the automation code was was organized and started using this screenplay pattern to to help you improve the way it was organized and and i think i remember you saying in the original conversation like it was important to do it in those steps so you brought the team along rather than um kind of just just walking in on day one and going oh you need to use the screenplay pattern yeah. Well, I mean, this BDD, it's, it's all about collaboration, isn't it? I mean, that's what, if you want to break it down in the simplest thing, it's about collaborating between the different sort of teams that make up these uh, these projects and these applications. So if I, I felt if I walked in there and done that on day one, you were going to get people's backs up straight away. People weren't going to buy in and the whole thing was going to be a failure. So, you know, I had to get people on site because if, if they weren't going to collaborate, the whole thing wasn't going to work. Oh, that's an excellent message. Yeah, yeah. That feels like a good takeaway to me. Yeah, yeah, really good. Um, I think this is a, this is a good point to wrap it up and say and say thanks, Chris, for for sharing your story. And um, I hope it's inspired some other people that are out there listening, who are uh, somewhere along that path, and and given them some some optimism that they can break on through to the other side. <laughs> and you're still working with this team right now, is that right? Uh, I am, but. Um... It's looking like the development arm is going to be uh, all broken up in the next three years, and will be made redundant. So you know, if you're if you're looking for right. anybody, <laughs> well, there you go, folks. If anybody's <laughs> listening and needs uh, needs some some awesome, sounds like sounds like you might be able to poach Chris eventually. Yeah, got to be for that check first. Yes, of course. <laughs> well, thanks very much, Chris. It's been great speaking with yeah, you. Thanks a lot for coming on, Chris. Thanks very much. Thank you for having me.